Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. Today we'll be talking about women writing in the Iraqi Ba'athist state, contending discourses of resistance and collaboration, 1968-2003, out 2020 from University of Edinburgh Press. It's a unique book because it both explores discourse concerning women and how women themselves use literature to create a site of resistance to the state. Al-Hassan's work is also inclusive, as it joins a wider call to make literary studies a space in which works which are previous previously considered propagandistic uh, works of serious consideration. My hope for the book is that it will shift perspectives in literary studies to different foci, painting a more complete vision of the literary history of the Arabic language. So today we have its author with us, Hawrat al-Hassan, who is a visiting researcher at the Center of Islamic Studies, Cambridge University. She gained her PhD in Middle Eastern Studies from the University of Cambridge and her MA in Comparative Literature, English, Arabic, and French Literatures from University College London and SOAS. She is interested in researching the cultural history of the modern Arab world and as far as it relates to propaganda, nationalist literature, and religious and sect-based identities. So welcome to the podcast, Howard Out. Thank you so much, Nadira. Great to be here. So we always begin with the question of sort of how you came to academia, what drives your research on a personal and professional level. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was very, very lucky in that I grew up in a house that really valued and loved the humanities. And I don't want to say that that's not the case in in most Arab households, but around me, it was quite rare. My dad did his PhD in um, um, history of the Middle East and actually started his thesis on um, Saudi national identity when I was around 13. So I literally came of age while he was doing um, his PhD on nationalism. And that's what really drew me to nationalism. And I think in his heart of hearts, he really wanted me to do history. And I was accepted to do history um, at SOAS, Middle Eastern history. But I think I was an idealist at the time. And I saw history as kind of an elite activity and literature as kind of the voice of the common people. 
And I decided that I wanted to do literature, but I remained really interested in history and where literature and history kind of met throughout my degree. And I actually got into comparative literature because I felt that comparative literature was a way in which we could um, expand literature outwards into other disciplines, history, philosophy, through literary theory. Um, and yeah. I think that really shows in your work because I don't feel like it's confined to a single genre. I feel like it um, is a literary history. It's um, a book of literary analysis, but it's also very much engaged with institutions. I like that. I like how the book thinks about the apparatus that are creating literature and the social conditions. I feel like, yeah, you you definitely, and this is meant as a compliment, you, you, you straddle different fields. So what basically happened was from being an idealist and seeing literature as kind of a site where people are acted upon and then they produce something in response, I, I now see literature as a very important part of state building and a really important state discourse um, and an elite discourse at that. So, yeah, come full circle. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that brings us perfectly into my next question, which is how did this, be how did this book begin as a research project? So I started by uh, looking at various Arab states. I was really interested in seeing how the novel, which was essentially an imported genre from the West, uh, and that was intimately related to the rise of the nation state in Europe, how it, how it kind of became transposed onto the Arab context, especially in contexts where the nation is, is so tenuous. It's, uh, you know, there was civil wars and, and it just a nation state that wasn't stable. And I wanted to see how that instability would be reflected in a supposedly stable genre like the novel. Um, unfortunately, because I was so interested in so many things, I, it was very difficult for me to do a comparative project. And actually, this is what I want to do after. What I want to do now is move on to kind of more comparative work, but we'll maybe talk about that later. Um, so I ended up actually looking at specifically Iraq because I thought it was such a unique example of how the state co-opts literature and co-opts the novel. And I was just amazed by how aware um, both, state and, both state and society were of, of, of the potential of the novel to do something that poetry had, would never be able to do. And I thought that was really, really interesting. So unfortunately, I had to, I was working on a bit of Lebanese literature at the time. I was doing a bit of Gulf literature and I, I, I kind of pushed them away. And I thought I would do something kind of very interdisciplinary, very kind of look at the embeddedness of texts um, in one context, because um, it would be difficult to do both at the same time. How did you select the books that you were that you're, you you were working on? Because I can imagine you mentioned it at various points in the book that um, you know many of these books were printed once they were mass produced, uh, but you know they were produced at such a rate that they were only produced once, and then new books took their place, or they were for whatever reason there was only one printing. And um, I'm curious, sort of, what your methodology was because I can imagine there was just so much material for you to get through. So how did you sort of I mean, it just sounds so daunting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, I actually really enjoyed looking for the texts because um, where I found them actually um, kind of allowed me to read them differently. So, for example, I found a text um, in SOAS Library and it was dated 1988 from the author to SOAS Library. I mean, so a text that was produced 
you know, in Iraq instantaneously found itself um, in Soas Library um, at a time of war because the Iraqi state was bent on um, making sure that these texts reach the West. So um, it was part of this. Uh, it was part of the propaganda initiative of the of the um, of the state to make sure that these texts reach Western libraries. So I loved finding them. I, I was. I thought I'd, I wouldn't be able to find any of them, but I loved finding them. I was like, how did this text get here? Or you'll find, for example, if you open the you know the books at the beginning, you'll find that um, kind of the Iraqi cultural attaché. Uh, um, you know, gifted this book to the British Library or to SOAS or to even Cambridge Library. So um, actually, they made it very easy for me <laughs> um, to, to to find these texts. I didn't have to. I had um, people on the ground in Iraq looking for these texts for me. And they couldn't find any in Iraq. Mm-hmm. There were none in Iraq because, it, you know, these texts would, you know, are ephemeral. They would never last um, in, a, in especially post-2003 context. Um, so um, I think, I, and I look a lot at where we find text, the materiality of text, and even where we find them is significant. So I actually, I was led by whatever I could find. If I found it, it means it was, I'm able to find it for a reason. And there is, you know, and I tried to look at, you know, the reasons why I was able to find certain texts and not others. No, I really enjoy that aspect of, of, of thinking about what we write about. Because I think, as you said, sort of the history of the object lends itself to how we interpret it, as you just sort of beautifully laid out for us. Um, it also makes us, again, question sort of the nature of archives and libraries and, and think about the ways in which material is, is organized. Um, so I, I know I really enjoyed hearing about that from you. Um, I'm actually also curious about your period, your periodization. So how you laid out the period, was it based on what you could find or was it based on, again, political events? Because you cover the period 68 to 2003. Yeah, so definitely it's from the second Ba'ath Party rule. So from 1968 to 2003, definitely just very clearly shaped by not the rule of Saddam, but by the Ba'ath Party. Um, I was... I wanted to do it just about, for my PhD, actually, I look just at um, the period where Saddam ruled. But because I discovered these religious novels that were written in the late 60s, I felt that I had to extend my time period backwards and to look at the Ba'ath Party in a way um, without necessarily looking at the dominance of Saddam. I mean, obviously, it became a one-man party, but um, the, the kind of Saddam's... Um, view on culture as a culmination, actually, of, of Ba'athist ideology. So I pushed it a bit further back into history in order to accommodate those novels, actually, and specifically the novels of um, Bintil Huda, um, whom I'll, we'll talk about probably in a bit. So let's zoom out for a moment before we get into sort of more of the details of the book. Iraqi literature as a field and Arabic literature as an even greater field um, are fields that are uh, growing and changing, um, I mean, as different people enter it, as different people leave it. And I want to know more sort of about how you position yourself in the field. What interventions do you feel need to be made in both Iraqi, the study of Iraqi literature and the study of Arabic literature? And specifically, how do you feel that your book is a part of a, because I, mean, I definitely see your book as an intervention to intellectual and cultural history, but how do you sort of, what interventions do you envision yourself making? 
Yes, I do think that unfortunately, um, the study of Iraqi literature has been dominated by the troubled history of Iraq and by Iraq's wars. So you will find some work on war literature and even the place of women in war literature. There are a few, a few, uh, um, a, a few works on that. But I felt that with with my book, um, I felt like I wanted to tell us a story. And I think that even academic books they should tell a story. And the story is basically that the discourse around women and discourse around the novel were both used as markers of progress. Um, and I felt, and, and, and sometimes substituting each other. So in the 1980s, in the 60s, in the 70s, you had more open views of women, more, more quote-unquote progressive uh, views on women. Um, it, there was, it was a time of um, economic prosperity and a lot of women um, got into the, uh, into the, into the job market and it was you know it was a, it was, they were the golden years for um, Iraqi women and then in the 1980s there was kind of a regression and then what happened in the 1980s is that the novel kind of replaced women as the symbolic marker of progress so women were suddenly kind of uh, uh, shifted aside and then the novel became the big marker the big symbolic marker of of uh, of progress, so I, f- I feel that um, the not the I won't say the problem, but I feel that we, we often, even though we're working in area studies, there are pros and cons, of course, to working in area studies, and um, but we should, I think, naturally uh, gravitate towards uh, uh, interdisciplinary um, approaches to our to to our object or object of study and we don't do that as much so usually literature literary studies are very separate from histories um, we don't like to see and, and I think with literature because literature is a marker still and will always be a marker of high culture I think it's quite uncomfortable to look at literature um, I remember when I was doing my PhD someone someone from my family said to me um, people, when people study literature, they study good literature. Why are you studying bad literature? Um, and and it really upset me because I felt like <laughs> I felt like, but this is really important. This is saying that um, literature is so important that the state is willing to, uh, to, you know, to try and co-opt it, and it's putting so much funds into trying to co-opt it. Surely that's important, but <laughs> but that that was, you know. So I feel like I'm, I really am. Pushing. So in literary studies, we usually look at the historical context of text. That's normal. That's what we do when we do lit- literary studies and analysis. But I felt like I really pushed it, really pushed it into um, cultural studies, textual studies. I feel like we are in need of a kind of a textual studies uh, discipline, as in to study literature alongside, I mean, real literature, quote unquote, alongside uh, religious texts, alongside uh, political tracts, mm-hmm. so, and to see them in dialogue with each other. And I tried to do a bit of it, but this is what I want to do in the future as well. I want to see literature as part of kind of a, a wider print culture um, and a kind of a wider Arab textual studies, as it were. It's so sad that we have to have this conversation all the time of, of this is important literature, right? Like, children's literature. Um, uh, I work on devotional literature, so I am always sort of pushing for devotional literature as literature. Um, trying to think of other genres. Genre, genre, genre literature um, as something serious to be studied, um, which is, is, is happening. It's beginning to happen. It's just tragic that we have to have this conversation over and over and over again um, because we don't think about 
literature, we, we think about literature, as you said, in terms of quality um, and not in terms of what is being consumed and produced, which is something, again, I admired about the book, because I think, again, it tries to think about the audience, but also the infrastructure, um, but also the themes and how they're, they're consumed. Um, so, yeah. Um, I mean, before we, again, get sort of more into the details of the book, the book is about women. And before we started recording, we had a bit of a chat about how women are portrayed. And I wanted sort of to get you to speak more to that, because I think um, the women question, so to speak, is really big in area studies and Middle East studies. And it's because of just it's because of the media. It's because of how contemporary Islam um, and the contemporary Arab world are viewed um, by people in the West. I mean, there's so many different things plugging into it. There's an exoticization. And I wanted to sort of talk about how I wanted to ask you how you insert yourself into this conversation, um, because, I mean, it's a minefield. And I can imagine that sitting down and plotting out how you're going to do this research and then how you're going to write it um, is just you sitting down and thinking about how to avoid letting these minds explode. Thank you so much for that question. That's a really good question. So there are uh, several things that I wanted to challenge in the book. The first was whether writing by women, by Arab women, is inherently resistive. And this is something we look at a lot in, in, in uh, kind of Arab literary studies, that usually if a woman writes something, then she must be um, either attacking the patriarchy, critiquing the state or something. And actually... I think we should be very careful with that because what we do is is that we don't look at how embedded women are in their context. We essentialize women and we kind of treat them as these objects that are um, ahistorical um, and are separate or have separate concerns from the rest of the society. Um, and another, um, an another kind of uh, idea that I wanted to challenge is that all worthy work by women is necessarily feminist. And um, I actually... Um, the text, my my book, I, I'm sure that I will get a bit of criticism for this. I don't look, um, I don't use feminist theory actually. I don't think I even, yeah, I don't. I know I, I do mention feminism, but I don't use the word feminist um, very often in the book. And I don't use feminist theory, um, literary theory. Although I, you know, some amazing work has been done in feminist literary theory, and and I think that especially in my final chapter, where the where I have one chapter. Um, that includes artistic work, so real literature. And in those texts, the women in those texts see themselves as A, human beings first and foremost, um, B, citizens of the world, and then C, um, Iraqis or Arabs. Um, they choose not to see themselves as women first. And I feel that that shouldn't be um, held against them. So. In one analysis, uh, um, a literary analysis of one of the texts that I'm looking at by Haifa Zengana, um, um, kind of a literary critic says, um, this book is not feminist. She puts it alongside uh, Nawal Saadawi's work. And she says, um, Haifa Zengana's work is not feminist. It's woman-centered. So by using feminism as a badge, mm. so it's a badge that we kind of, you know, give good women, uh, women that are... Um, doing the things that we as you know we as western feminists think that they should be doing given the circumstances they're living in by 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 weaponizing feminism in that way i think we are really doing a disservice to the wide range of women 
um, women's, uh, women and their experiences in the Arab world. And that's why I wanted to include the, the works of uh, religious women in, in this book. I mean, these texts are very, very, they, they, they use um, a lot of stereotypes and, and, and um, they're, they're very simplistic, they're very didactic, and they don't paint the right kind of picture that we would like to have about women. Yeah, very black and white, you know, the angel whore dichotomy. But I wanted it to be there and I wanted to see it to challenge the idea that something that is quite conservative um, can't be um, resistive. So resistance has to be um, liberal. Otherwise, it's not resistance. And and again, resistance is used as a badge as well. Kind of this, you know, you are, <laughs> you know, you are resistive text. This is your badge. You are a feminist text. This is your badge. Um, another thing that I think is very important when we talk about women in the Arab world is the issue of dress and the issue of the veil and the idea that um, um, dressing is repressive and undressing is not repressive. And um, we really have to move beyond these things. And at the same time, um, to even when uh, authors discuss dress, I think we really should be able to look at uh, um, uh, dress in, in, in the way that we look at any normal daily experience that women go through. I mean, we don't have to always politicize it. That's what I'm, that's what I mean. And I, and the re religious novels, I don't think they, they do talk about modest dress, but they don't, I, I don't think that they, um, they, and they, of course they do, they use, they politicize the, the hijab and, and modest dress, um, but they do so as part of a wider battle. I don't think that it's um, necessarily, um, I, I, it's very difficult. <laughs> it's a very difficult one, isn't it? I think we should be very, very careful um, about fixating on certain things, mm -hmm. not just the veil, um, and but also um, ethnic and racial and sectarian differences, like the fixation on these things. And and um, a lot of a, a lot of people are interested in Iraq specifically because of the kind of ethnic and uh, sect-based kind of diversity that you have in Iraq. And um, a lot of people ask me, well, um, what about Kurdish literature? What about um, Iraqi Christian literature? What about um, you know all these kind of literatures that they, they see as maybe sub-literatures or outside of Iraqi literature, when maybe those authors just want to be considered as, as part of the whole. So very, very, it's a very delicate balance to try to achieve in a, in a work on women in the Arab world. Um, you don't want to um, perpetuate stereotypes about, about women. Um, and you... And, and even about men as well, because um, there's a reason why these authors don't talk about um, the patriarchy or don't use the word patriarchy or don't talk about, don't critique um, Iraqi men in the way that we would, we as Western feminists would like to see criticisms of, of patriarchy. They don't do that. They choose not to. And I'm sure it's not because they, they don't know that, you know, that, that misogyny and sexism exists. I think it's a deliberate political choice. Um, in these texts, so as in there are there are priorities, um, and the priorities that they see are um, um, liberating Iraq from the American invasion, for example, or from authoritarian rule. And for them, that is the priority, and they they feel like that men and women should work together in that. I don't, I'm sure that's not going to be a popular opinion, <laughs> but I had to say it. <laughs> but it's also, I mean, a question that comes to my mind constantly is. Um people find different ways of navigating misogyny that feel very um, instinctive. Uh, and when things are instinctive like that, they don't 
necessarily come up as, as topics of discourse, especially when, because you have these instincts, as you said, you have priorities. So if your instincts can sort of shield you from elements of quote unquote patriarchy, I feel sometimes, um, you can focus on the goal because you've put the bandaid over, you know, a manageable wound. Uh, anyway, um, I don't know. I think that's one way of looking at it, but at the same time, I don't know. It's, it's, it's difficult just because I think the fields, I still, I mean, the field, the academic field is still very interested in these tropes. I don't know. What do you think? Definitely. Do you think the women question's changing? <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, no, I still think that the Arab woman's body is the main site of contention in Arabic literature and, and in criticism. It is the, it's always about the body. And that's why I look at the privatization of the body as a wave resistance in the, in the, um, in the religious novels. It's the idea that because you want my body out on display, then I don't want it to be on display, even though, you know, that is obviously that means that I'm staying at home and not working. That's what that, that's the discourse in the religious novels. That's not that's not me speaking, but um, I do think that we're still fixated on the body, and a lot of um, the literature and a lot of um, writers actually know, and a lot of actually um, f- famous Arab writers always joke that if I wanted to become famous and sell like a one million copies of a, of a novel, I'll just you know write this novel about. Um, this oppressed woman and then she goes to Sweden and writes, you know, <laughs> and writes this novel about Islam and sex. And then, you know, actually, I think Haifa Zenkana says this in her novel as well that I analyze that You could easily, you could easily write something that would, you know, that would spread like wildfire and it would be what people want to know, want to hear. It, it would, you know, kind of, it would resonate with Orientalist uh, stereotypes and the discourse that is, um, uh, prevalent in in West, in West, but they but they choose not to do it. They choose not to do it, even if it means sometimes um, not focusing on patriarchy. So, yeah, yeah. It's sad also just because it falls into. I mean, this is going completely off course, but um, this same trope of 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 women and women being sort of trapped in something, um, their own bodies or. Or, or, or a marriage or whatever, it's, it's repeated in diaspora literatures and that's a really big problem to me. But it's, it, it's, it's sad because I feel like all these processes that we're talking about are interlinked, you know what I mean? Like they all have an impact on one another and then they have an impact on what is produced in different fields that portray Arab or Muslim women. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, you're right. Completely. Completely agree. 
anyway, maybe we should move on to something a little bit more because we'll be talking about women for a bit um, as it is the subject of your book. Um, I really enjoyed, again, and I brought this up earlier, the way you bring up infrastructure. So, I mean, the Bath Party, as you detail in the book, um, used the novel to achieve its goals. And I'm curious about the state infrastructure. Um, how did the Bath Party develop this infrastructure to produce novels like this? And were you able to, I mean, this is quite a difficult question, were you able to perceive any differences in terms of how the publishing sector in IDOC changed over the 68 to 2003 period? Oh, yeah, it's a great question as well. So there was a huge shift. So remember that Iraq had the most literate population. So you start first as a state, you start by creating a market for whatever texts you want to produce. So illiteracy was eradicated. And actually, the cover of my book is a picture of a woman in an illiteracy class. I mean, they had floating um, schools uh, in the middle of the Arab marshes, in the so- southern marshes, um, to um, to ensure that the marsh, you know, the marsh Arabs were, you know, were learning to read and write. I mean, it, I mean, Saddam won a prize from the UN for doing this, for erad- basically eradicating illiteracy. So once you have the readership, then you can move on. Remember, um, uh, Iraq had there was a huge, huge boom, economic boom due to the rising oil prices in the late sixties and seventies, and and so the publishing sector became one of the best in uh, in the Arab world. Um, what happened though was that there was a shift in the type of books that were produced, and I look at that a bit in the in the introduction. So I look at the shift from um, so the shift to the humanities first and foremost. So suddenly the humanities were published more than the sciences. But then within the humanities, literature basically goes up from like being maybe fifth or sixth place um, in terms of humanities and number of books published up to the number one. So you have a shift within the humanities where literary texts um, become the most published text um, by the state. And... um, um, I have actually an Iraqi friend who, um, whose mother during the Iran-Iraq war, whose mother managed a publishing, like a small printing press, um, because obviously so many women did that because of, you know, the men were, were on the front. Um, and she says that, that it was, it was one of the most lucrative businesses and one of the lucrative, most lucrative things you could do it was a really good job working in printing presses. Um, so many new presses were set up. Especially Afaq um, Arabiya, um, which was kind of, it was literary and it was histories as well. It was really kind of specialized in, um, in humanities production. Then you had specific um, publications directed at women, but those disappeared in the 1980s. So you had actually certain printing presses producing um, written materials for the army, actually. So you even had like literature that was specifically specifically targeted troops so it was a huge project enabled of course by favorable economic circumstances and um, ideological circumstances um, that kind of emerged and solidified because of the Iran-Iraq war so actually a lot of um, uh, kind of state literary critics credit the Iran-Iraq war for um, kind of uh, for allowing Iraqi cultural production to flourish. So they say actually it was a very positive effect of the war um, on on publishing. But 
it wasn't because it had a positive effect on publishing. It's because that the state prioritized publishing over other things during the during the war. And the interesting thing is, and I look at this in the book, that we we shouldn't treat the eight year war as a totality. It wasn't all one block. You had like you know dips. You know you had times when Iraq was kind of winning, and then you had times you know when Iran was winning. And you'd notice that if there was a military setback, then there'd be more books produced in that year to compensate for 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 the loss. So you had to had you you used basically words to compensate for losses. It's extraordinary to see. And then if you had kind of a period where Iraq was doing well in the war then kind of writers kind of seem to kind of breathe a sigh of relief and they could kind of, you know, rest on their oars and they wouldn't, they wouldn't be pushed into producing um, an over-language that would cover up um, losses. So it's extraordinary. It was, it's an extraordinary experience, a cultural experience to look at in the Arab world, I think. Um, okay, so... I mean, you described this, the, 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 the growth of this industry. Um, and one thing I enjoy about the book, and this is because I'm materialist at heart, I really enjoyed how you talked about the non-textual elements. Um, and of course, as, as we know, there is there was a huge boom in graphic design in the late 20th century in the Arab world. Um, a lot of this overlapped with the growth in um, Arab art that was being sold on the international markets, but also was being featured in um, large art fairs that, that emerged in, in the late 20th century in different capitals and major cities. Um, and the one thing I find quite interesting is book covers. Um, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, it's on Instagram and they're developing a website, the book cover archive, the Arabic book cover archive. I've seen it. It's amazing. I mean, just the amount of talent and art and developing those covers and that packaging, it's, it's incredible. And I think it's something that goes overlooked and I'm glad they're developing this tool. So I want to ask more about that, sort of the non-textual elements um, around the texts itself and how that um, impacted readers, but also how was that part of the industry in itself? Um, the way I looked at uh, book covers is that uh, book covers were used strategically in order to deliver certain messages without the reader having to actually read the book. So it was so these covers were meant to be very, very explicit. They're not like the lovely, beautiful covers you're looking at, you're, you're talking about. Very explicit, um, um, ex as in like explicit messaging. So very kind of clear um, nationalist uh, imagery that's used on these texts in order to deliver a certain image alongside the title, of course, because they had very, very kind of, you know, you know, you wouldn't even have to open that book. You knew exactly what that book would tell you because of the title plus the, um, the book cover. Um, so book covers were used um, to deliver certain propagandistic messages without the need to read. So they reached a wider audience than the actual text themselves. And um, some of them are really interesting to look at. Um, in terms, but but the the war ones were quite repetitive um, in in their theme. So it always, almost always featured um, uh, um, kind of a soldier of some sort, the Iraqi flag, sometimes other types of uh, um, kind of uh, uh, images. For example, you'd have a lot of um, the Dome of the Rock. You'd see a lot of kind of attempting to, and it would show you how um, 
the attempts by the Ba'ath to co-opt kind of the Palestinian cause by using kind of imagery, um, uh, imagery like that. Um, oftentimes, you'll have a woman's face actually on these um, on these uh, book covers because they wanted to make the explicit link between women women as a symbol of national identity. And I think in one of the novels of Saddam, he actually says this about an, an, one of the characters, a Kurdish character. He says, she says, Shatrin, the symbol, not the, not the person. So, so there is a lot of use of the, f- the female uh, figure um, on, on, on book covers in order to portray national, kind of a national identity that is symbolized in women. And I talk about the problem of using women as a symbol in the book a lot. By all, by by you know, by resistive kind of religious uh, texts and by kind of texts by the state. And of course, the state changed. Of course, you know, it's not that the te- you know that the that the bath remained kind of secular um, forever. Of course, but t- towards the the late the, the late eighties, you had this shift, and then women were used as well as a symbol of national identity, but in a different way, in a kind of a more conservative way. So, you, and you will see that on the book covers as well. You mentioned the novels of Saddam Hussein, and Saddam Hussein, of course, it was doesn't need an introduction. Um, his notoriety and his his place as a historical figure. Then, of course, I mean current events of the last twenty years. Um, so, can you? I mean, obviously, I think fewer people know about him as a novelist, but I'm guessing also that so much of this work was ghost written, so on and so forth. Can you tell us a bit more about his novels and how? They were marketed, but also the content. Yeah, I became really interested in in those novels. Actually, my PhD is mostly on the novels of Saddam, actually, um, as a case study for a state propaganda literature. And I found them interesting because I thought it just seemed extraordinary that um, in three years, four novels were produced and Iraq was on the brink of an invasion and a war. And a lot of the novels, if you compare them to the state-sponsored novels of the Iran-Iraq War, you could find actually a lot of things in common. So, so apparently, so this is this was the kind of idea uh, of you know of what the novel meant in in Iraq literature. So, the novel in Iraq was supposed to reflect the greatness of the Iraqi nation, and you know prizes were given out to the best kind of every year during the Iran-Iraq war for the best novel. And then what happened was is that Saddam said that those novels, after giving them prizes, of course, that those novels weren't good enough um, and that they they didn't reflect the greatness of Iraq properly, so he had to do it himself. And, of course, by do it himself, I mean that he wrote, he produced these novels and did not mention his name um, on, the, on the cover and brings us back to the idea of, you know, covers and... And the importance of 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 what is on those covers, and so that so he would put the title of the novel, and then he would say by its author, um, but everyone knew that it was supposedly him who had written them, um, because it would say at the back that the this great man who had written the novels was so humble that he didn't want to write his name, and it was uh, was quite clear that it was him. And then his fourth novel was actually claimed by his daughter, um, so she she kind of she printed it. Uh, she 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 printed it again under his own name, so yeah. But I mean, in terms of content, I I I think that as if you look at them as a whole, and I there there haven't been any studies. I think there's one study of one of the novels, um, 
but to look at them as a whole, you can see all the contradictions of Ba'athist state discourse on women in those four novels. You can see the conservative tribalism. You can see the shift to a more religious kind of discourse. You can see the progressive, quote-unquote, progressive Ba'ath, liberal Ba'ath of the 1970s. You can see it all in those four novels. And I divide them into two parts. So two of the novels were based in Babylon, sometime in ancient Babylon. Of course, they're very, very um, badly written novels. Um, They're supposedly set in Babylon, but there are so many contradictions. It it makes no sense. A lot of the the plots are all over the place. Characterization is shallow. But again, we're looking at them not for their quality. So the two novels that were supposedly set in ancient Mesopotamia look at women as a symbol, are very progressive. So, for example, one of the characters is adulterous and, you know, she's like the Joan of Arc of the novel and she saves, you know, the Arabs who obviously didn't exist in Mesopotamia, but, you know, it's okay. (laughs) Um, She saves them from this invading army. But, however, when you look at the two novels that are set um, in modern Iraq, it's completely different. It's extremely conservative, especially, so when we have real women... Uh, then we have a very conservative discourse. And then when we have women that are, you know, in this kind of foggy history, ancient history, we can afford to use kind of a, well, he could afford to use a more progressive discourse. The most conservative of all of the novels in terms of the way it views women is his autobiography, which is called Men in the City, but is really just about one man. Um, And it's... um, because it's about his mother, I mean, it uses, he uses, so for example, um, he will call himself Saleh instead of Saddam. So very clear, very crude, but very, very clear um, connections between the, you know, the na- the real names and the, the fictitious characters. Very, very conservative and kind of very reverent of especially his mother, female, the female, his female, his women folk, but also quite dismissive of their, kind of um, weakness as women and that you know that he you know he so the story is basically about him wanting to achieve his destiny and all these women that are too scared are, are you know are fr- you know are fret over his safety and they, they want to hold him back and he has this very interesting part where he says my mum tried to um, put earrings on me and apparently this was a way of protecting him from becoming too manly and you know causing himself to you know die or something so you know getting himself killed and that he refused to wear those earrings because no one could stop the destiny of this great man even his mother who was trying to weaken him by making him more effeminate through the use of the earrings so very very conservative and a lot of because of there was a shift towards more kind of tribal values and you can see that in a lot of um, so tribal songs become popular in the 90s, especially after the Intifada of 1991. Um, you see a lot more reliance on tribal kind of, you know, because kind of the, the Ba'ath party was becoming a family party at that stage. So the mm-hmm. tribalism became very, very important. And you see a lot of that um, in the novel, especially that novel. So, yeah, so taken as a whole, all the contradictions, all the kind of real politique manipulation of, of, of women in discourse can be found in those novels. Um, and that's why I find them very, very so interesting. And I find I them really interesting. Oh, sorry. sorry. Yeah, go on. Yeah, no, no, go on. No, no, sorry. It was, um, there was a cut and I, I waited for a bit and I thought you were done. I'm going to take this down as a moment. Go on, just go on. I'll ask my question. No, no, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> oh, let me just take that down. 
Uh, sorry, uh, it's still recording you, but um, and I'm still hearing everything you're saying. But sometimes there's a bit of a lag. Okay, so uh, what I really admire about the book is that the second half is focused. It would it would have been so easy to write this book as just, you know, discourse on women. But you look as, at women as active agents as well. And I think this balance of having both women as active agents, but also women as a focus of discourse is very unique in sort of the landscape of uh, studies on women in Middle East studies. And I wanted to ask a bit about that and to ask sort of um, how women used literature as resistance. How did it function as a site of resistance? What does resistance mean? Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, first of all, I didn't really want to divide it that way because I didn't want to give the impression that, uh, so this is the state, which is basically men, and then resistance comes from women. And then that's it, they're opposed. Because there was, of course, um, state feminism. The General Federation for Iraqi Women, they were they played a huge role in the war. They, they had like gold, gold donations campaign where women very theatrically took off their gold and put it in kind of boxes to donate uh, to the war effort against Iran. They played a huge role, actually, in uh, disseminating Ba'athist ideology amongst women. The General Federation of Iraqi Women. So, so we did have state feminism. So there were women who worked with the state, definitely. But at the same time, I did feel that it made sense putting those two kind of in, in kind of in opposition um, to one another um, because of the range of uh, f- uh, female responses that I had. So I I really wanted to, to be um, women from kind of a broad spectrum. Of Iraqi society, and that's why I wanted, and I, it was difficult as well. I didn't want to say religious versus secular resistance; that was a problem for me. Um, I just wanted to take away this aura of resistance as being um, inherently liberal and progressive, in the same way certain state policies are, you know, on women would be progressive if they were kind of. Um, uh, um, if you know, uh, by encouraging women to go to work, then that meant that this, the Baptist state was inherently progressive. I, I wanted to get away from that kind of uh, the grantedness sometimes that we deal with women's issues. So necessarily that by inc- you know what what the Baptist did was it used women actually. Um, it, it did encourage them to work. Um, it had no long term progressive policy for women. It used women when um, it was. Um, when they needed women to work in the economy with the boom in the economy and they needed workers. And then afterwards, when the economy kind of virtually collapsed, um, they they wanted they wanted women to go back into the home because men were coming back from the front lines and they wanted to, their jobs back. So, so we have to be very careful with, um, you know, wh- how we place things in opposition to one another, secular and religious, women and men. But I did think that um, looking at kind of a broad range of responses was important. So I have one one chapter on religious novels, and religious novels have never been um, uh, have never been uh, analysed at all, uh, to my knowledge, anywhere. Um, these specific novels, and these were actually novels that were very very popular amongst amongst most Arab Shia women at, at that time, um, and not even maybe until until about ten years ago, I think. Um, so I, I thought it was really strange that these texts that, that went into multiple reprints, multiple editions. So um, Bintil Huda's novel that I analyzed um, was in its sixth edition 
from 1968 to 1980, so six editions um, in 12 or six re uh, reprints in 12 years. And I felt that really, I mean, women were doing a lot of reading and writing at that time, religious women. And just because the, the texts themselves are, are sometimes, you know, sometimes very, very um, deal with women in a very black and white way, that doesn't mean that it's not important to look at those texts as an important part of, of kind of the cultural history of Iraq. And then the then I look at um, autobiographical writings by um, by Iraqi women, and, and that's that's the only chapter, as I say, that looks at kind of real artistic works. And I thought it was interesting to look at them because um, what the state did was that it wanted to paint a picture of the nation as one thing, even when it talked about diversity within a nation. So that so they'll do things like. Um, uh, Saddam will come out wearing Kurdish kind of Kurdish clothes or uh, praying in the praying in the Imam Hussein shrine or something. These were all kind of just very kind of um, uh, um, superficial a superficial nod to the diversity of Iraq. In actual fact, and we're looking at the propaganda text, it's clear it's one monologic voice that you find in all these texts. And what the autobiographical novels of women do is that they show us the diversity of, of women's responses and um, and they personalize women in a way that you don't find in any of the texts. So it's women as real human beings, not as symbols. The religious novels deal with women as symbols as well, because as I say in the in the in the book, it's fighting fire with fire. So it's propaganda versus propaganda. Whereas the autobiographical um, novels kind of do something a bit different. So they personalize a woman's experiences in a way that you don't find in the other texts. And I thought, and I look at personalization and bonding and how um, by looking at different types of bonds between, between um, women and also between um, uh, uh, Arabs generally, uh, world citizens, those bonds challenge the kind of strict bonds of national identity propagated by the state. Okay, so uh, I just want to congratulate you on the book. It's an achievement to get anything out this year at all and wish you luck with promoting it. And hopefully the reception inshallah will be good in the reviews. Um, but we always close with asking, what projects are you currently working on? Can you give us any teasers? Yeah, so, I, so you know, I talked about being interested in how texts speak to each other, literary and non-literary texts. And I'm doing something similar, actually. I'm looking at one author from Egypt, actually. I'm looking at um, Abdurrahman Sharqaw. I'm pre preparing a book proposal, actually, um, Abdurrahman Sharqaw. And I'm looking at the fact that he was labeled as a communist and an Islamist at the same time, and that he yeah. wrote texts that were secular, quote-unquote, and religious. So I want to look at, you know, the fact that we separate these two, these two kind of things in such a um, kind of polarized way it, it's it's not the natural way to do it I mean I mean we do, there was a time when these two kind of blended together but for political reasons I think they've solidified as being kind of polar opposites so I'm going to look at kind of his religious texts and his uh, novels um, he's got one 
play as well um, about um, kind of an Algerian revolutionary woman. So I've, I'm, I'm doing that. I'm hoping to do that. So I'm moving. I, I'm not going to move away from Iraq completely, but I, I think the comparatist in me is kind of uh, drawing me to kind of, uh, kind of, you know, to the wider kind of world of literature. But the article I'm working on um, currently actually um, looks at literature and propaganda. It looks at how um, the British used um, a Persian passion play as a kind of spectacle of, of barbarism. So um, in Iran, um, Persia formerly, Iran, Persia, whichever you want, um, uh, these plays were um, uh, um, commemorated the um, martyrdom of Imam Hussein. And then I have a text that was written by um, a kind of a, 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 a kind of a head of the British kind of legion in Persia. And he basically transcribed the play see, into English and called it the Persian Passion Play of Hassan and Hussein and used it as, as a form of propaganda and um, against Muslims generally, but also um, looking at kind of, kind of this kind of uh, early sectarian awakening. It's like, you know, this is when the British first began to realize that sectarian differences could be potentially used um, as part of kind of their strategy of empire. And um, I thought it was literature and propaganda, but looked at from a kind of a different perspective. But this was because of Corona. Like it just pushed me into a completely different area. I think I'll just do like one article on that. I'm, I'm very kind of weary and like stepping on the toes of like Iranian studies people. And that's why I'm using mainly looking at um, English texts, Victorian texts um, on the Passion Play because it became kind of a kind of a big kind of exotic thing at the time and Matthew Arnold wrote about it as well so I'm looking at kind of travelogues and views of the play as kind of a spectacle of barbarism and as an indicator of sectarian difference and I think that it's uh, it's interesting that literature is used uh, to understand kind of the colonized mentality in that way so this is just my completely random thing that I'm doing that is out of my I don't know how many people do this in academia but I, I thought I'd do something that um it's a, you know, it's a pandemic and we were never going to have one probably again. And I just thought I'd do something that um, was really, really different. And then I have my um, my book present. I have a couple of other uh, chapters actually on Iraqi literature as well uh, um, in progress. But um, I'm, I think I'm broadening out as much as I can. Um, yeah. Well, best of luck. Those all sound like exciting projects, especially the Shakhawi one. I mean, that's my personal sort of passion is uh, these binaries and the problems with them. So I'm really excited to see that come out. Thank you so much. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.